Well, the best colour for Toby Haydock is green. Who's round for these ones in the 50s, uh, 50 to 60? Uh, I've mixed up the order a little bit. Uh, I'm doing ones that are slightly different, slightly special. I mean, they're all in their own way special, but uh, anyway, so this next one is uh, the only one. I've tried not to do too many at a convention, I think that's cheating a little bit. Although, if a fantastic opportunity has presented itself, I'm not going to turn it down but uh, it would have been easy for me just to leap from convention to convention grabbing people who had been invited and organised by somebody else and that would have seemed wrong. However, uh, for this one, uh, it's somebody I could have done at another time, I'm sure, but uh, it gets an extra frisson by being the only live in front of an audience who's round um, and who better than this next gentleman who is inextricably linked with Doctor Who and so deserves special treatment. Enjoy. And many of you might not know, I'm doing a series of podcasts this year. I try and get a first-hand anecdote from every Doctor Who story. And Terence has kindly allowed this panel to be used. So this is the first of the live, this is the first ever Who's Round podcast that's going to be live in front of an audience. So thank you to Terence for that. Uh, and thank you to the good people of Hoylake. So Terence, welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, so it's the 50th year of Doctor Who. I suppose the first question, Terence, Doctor Who started 50 years ago this year, the day after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Can you remember where you were when Kennedy was assassinated? Or the news came out? I'm afraid I can't. Um... I know, I know that's the thing that sticks in everybody's mind, and also I think they showed it twice, didn't they? They did a repeat, because they felt it didn't get a fair Oh, chance. Doctor Who, I thought you meant of Kennedy's assassination. <laughs> I think they felt that had worked the first time then. <laughs> we'll show it again, but this time from the grassy knoll. Yeah. So if you're not sure, you're about the only person that can't remember where they were when really, it happened. Really, no, I mean, that's... Uh, that's a myth, but I'm afraid I can't, you know, endorse it. Well, everybody, you know, knows about your work on Doctor Who and the Target novels and the script editing and the writing. Um, but what about can we go around back to where your your sort of childhood and and, and what was the what, where did Terence Sticks come from? What did your parents do? And what was your background? Uh, East End working class. Uh, got uh, got to the grammar school. Um, got a scholarship from uh, the grammar school to Cambridge. And, uh, you know, it's, you, in, in those, uh, it's the old days of the 11 plus and the grammar school when anybody with a bit of promise was shoved on, you see. And at a certain time, I'd always been uh, top of the class in English, middle to bottom in everything else, you know, and that's the only thing I can do. And at a certain period, the headmaster, when I was in the fourth or fifth form, the headmaster said, you are going to go, you're going to do an English scholarship to Oxford or Cambridge. I'm arranging for special tuition for you, and that's what you'll do. 
and you didn't argue in those days. <laughs> a large, terrifying man in a gown and a mortarboard, you know. And he liked to get people into Oxbridge because it looked good on the, on the notice board in gold letters. You know. I always say I got caught in an educational updraft, you know, so I just went along with it. And did you enjoy it? I mean, a lot of Oxbridge is a, a curious place. Some people say it's the making and sometimes it can be the breaking because of the expectation. Did you enjoy your time? At yeah, I did. Um, rather too much on the whole, you know. <laughs> um, at the, um, at the, they've got a very simple system at Cambridge. Um, you don't have to work if you don't want to. You don't have to go to lectures or anything. They give you a stiff exam at the end of every year and if you don't pass, they shut you out. You know, so it's sort of straightforward. Every year, somehow or other, I squeak through. And the third year, which was, you know, the final exam, um, I, I got, I remember going to, you know, where they pin up the results on a board and you find your way to look. And to my amazement and everybody else's, I got a 2-2, a lower second, which is a perfectly respectable degree. You know, it's not enough to be an academic, but it's okay. And afterwards, I met my tutor, and um, he, what did he say? He said, I was, um, I was sorry to hear about your result, Mr. Dix. And I said, well, I wasn't. I thought I did far better than I deserved. And he said, so do I. He said, <laughs> <laughs> he said I, I have been going round to saying to your fellow students, if you carry on like Mr. Dix, you're going to fail. You've caused me a good deal of embarrassment. <laughs> but nevertheless, Congratulations. <laughs> and, and so, you, okay, you were made to take English, or you, you, you were... Well, it's all I could do. Direction. I wasn't made to. It's the only thing I could do. So, did, but therefore, did you want to run? Was it a compulsion yeah, yeah. to run? It's you wanted the only to thing I can do. Um, I've got two left feet and bad, you know, um, bad reflexes. I'm utterly hopeless at any kind of game or sport. You know, throw me a ball and I'll drop it. But all the time I was at school... Um, the one thing I was good at was English, you know, as I say. Um, and the reason for that, I suppose, jumping back even further, is that I was an only child. And um, only children spend to, tend to spend a little more time with adults and a little more time on their own. And I was the kind of kid who'd always got his head in the book. You know, I just was a, uh, started reading young, read all my life, still do. And um, I was always being told to get my head out of a book and go outside and do something else, everything. Which has given me a lifelong distaste of going outside and doing anything else. <laughs> and I've managed to avoid it pretty much ever since. Really. Well, it has to be said, on a day like today, only a group of Doctor Who people could be stuck in doors. Yes, we are all out playing football. <laughs> So you're from a very working class family. So did your did your parents live to see your work on Doctor Who and things like that? And what did they make of it? They, I think they were well. They were fairly stunned by Cambridge in the first place, you know, because I mean, I was the only member of my family to go to university, you know, and um, and uh, I think they were all sort of slightly pleased but amazed by the whole thing, you know. And what about your family now? Because you have this thing, you come all the way today, and you go back today, and you do all these Doctor Who events, and everybody adores you, as well as admiring your work. But what do, what do the real people in your life, your family, make of your association uh, with Doctor Who? It, it, it's interesting, actually. It, it's very... Uh, it keeps you grounded, in a way. Um, when Who started, first of all, and they started... Ha well, no, when they first... When I've been working on it, and they started having conventions and the Doctor Who fan club, 
and I took my wife and my family to one of the first uh, Doctor Who conventions in London. You know, quite a big one, as it turned out. And bless them, they made a huge fuss, you know, crowding round autographs, wanting to talk, all that. Which baffled my kids very considerably. And on the way home, my middle son, I've got uh, three boys. On the way home, my middle son, Jonathan, who was always very sort of level-headed, said, Dad, are you famous? And I wanted to be absolutely straight with him, and I said, look, well, in the community of, no, I said, not to the world at large, you know, not like Elvis or anything, but in the community of Doctor Who fans, science fiction fans, particularly Doctor Who, I suppose you could just as said, say I was famous. And he thought for a bit and said, I suppose we could say you're only famous over a very small area. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's kept me, uh, you know, I've always, I've always thought of that. I'm only famous over a very small area. And, the, and another thing that kind of brought it home to me, I, I went to, years and years later, I went to a big convention in London, and again, now I saved myself a great success, lots of pats on the back and applause, and well, bless you, like you've been, you know, like you've been today. And you can get on a kind of a high with that, you see. Obviously, it's, uh, you know, it's very gratifying, you know. And I came home after the convention, and everybody said, oh, hello, Dad, all right, how'd it go, and that sort of thing, you know. And I had this vague sort of sense of something not right. And after a bit, I said, do you realise I've been home a whole hour, nobody has told me I'm wonderful, and nobody's asked for my autograph. <laughs> But you're fat to your family, you know, you're just dying, and that's, yeah. that is very good for you. Very levelly. Levelly, yes, keeps you going. No, it's a, you know, the cliché question is to ask where you get your ideas from and all that sort of thing. But Don't I, do that! So, so I'm not going Some, to. Somebody asked, but, some but, unfortunate girl asked me in the car. That is the one question all writers absolutely hate. How the hell do I know? They just come, you know. Never ask a writer that. So, well, so it's a good job I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> but I threw that there just to point out the fact that I wasn't going to. Um, but what about the practicals? Because you have to, you have to have a lot of discipline to be a writer. So, do you do office hours? Do you cut off external what, pressures? What it is is deadlines. See, in uh, in television there is a deadline by which time you must deliver a script. Because at that time, the writer, if the, if the writer doesn't deliver on time, the director will join and he brings an expensive team of people with him. If the scripts aren't there, they can't do anything. So deadlines are very important. So what used to uh, sort of motivate me, as it were, was um, the fact I got to have a certain thing done by a certain time. And I have a tendency to leave it late, you know, I mean, um, mostly I would get into a kind of mad rush, you know, and, um, but you can get into a state, which is very strange, I mean, I haven't done it for years, I probably couldn't stand it now, but where you just get into a sort of zone where you're absolutely dedicated. And once when I had a real emergency job, I worked all day, all night, and all the next day. With, you know, without stopping except for going for the occasional pee, as it were, or a cup of tea. And um, you don't get tired, you know, you're just, that, that's what you're there in life to do, is, is to write a Doctor Who book, you know. So, um, it would depend, you know, otherwise, if the, the deadline was better, you know, I would space it out a little more and take it more leisure. But being immensely lazy, I mean, um, 
friend, friend of mine's wife worked for the British Library where they keep a tally. And it appears that I have written and published over 200 books, much to my own astonishment. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> really, you know, it's a it's, uh, response to the pressure, you see. I mean, somebody once asked me what motivates you, you know, and I, and I say a contract, and a, a financial advance, and a deadline. You know, I need all those to function, as it were. <laughs> And what do, you, what do you make of uh, Matt Smith and the latest stuff? I, I, I've always said that, by and large, the casting of the Doctor is a sort of recurring miracle. And sometimes, I think there are two sorts of Doctors. There are people who are absolutely right and who are born to play. And there are people who are good actors and who try hard and do a decent job, you know, but they, they, are, they, they weren't actually completely made for it. And, um, I mean, the first, what, the first four, you know, Hart, uh, Hartnell, Troughton, Pertwee, Tom Baker, you know, who were, I think, absolutely right. And uh, when they brought the show back, um, then, uh, who, who's it, Christopher? Christopher Eccleston. Christopher Eccleston. He was in the good actor doing his best class, I think, and, and he obviously agreed. My feeling is that after a year of playing Doctor Who, he, caught, he got sight of some Doctor Who fans and promptly made it back to the National Theatre. <laughs> but um, then, you know, they got David Eccleston. David Tennant. David Tennant. David Tennant is as good as anybody that's ever done it, I think, you know. And I thought, you're, you're never, you know, and then when he was leaving, you see, which is sensible for an actor, because it's a fact if you do it too long. Then, then when he left, um, I thought, well, you know, what are they going to do? And they came up with Matt Smith, you know. Um, and I, I remember Stephen Moffat saying to me, you know, I was quite convinced that uh, we needed an older doctor. You know, we didn't want to go back to a younger one. And I agreed to see Matt Smith, you know, um, but I never really thought much had come of it. And then he came in and, you know, uh, walked into the audition, and I thought, that's it. That's the one, you know, when you know, you know sort of thing, you see. And they've been so lucky. The great question now is, can they do it again? <laughs> yeah. And, the, and the, in fact, the, the thing that people keep asking me is, uh, because the press bring it up, you know, uh, will it be a woman? Would you, if you were, would you ever cast a woman? Ah! <laughs> Listen, without being either sexist or racist, I wish the next doctor to be an adult male, an adult Caucasian male. I mean, because um, you know, if it works, don't fix it. You know, it's really. It, I think it would really be a terrible idea. Tom Baker brought it out in a spirit of mischief years ago, but I don't think he ever meant it seriously. But what I've read is that one day they'll do it. You know, they really will. They're taking over, you know. It's giving them a vote that was a <laughs> <laughs> fundamental mistake. Um, and when you were doing... Because, the, of course, as you say, the, the Doctor is so much about the personality of the actor. But when you're capturing that as a prose writer, who was the most difficult Doctor to, to put across in prose, if you like? Strangely enough, they're none of them uh, all that difficult because um, I remember talking to Bob Holmes, you know, who's one of the best Doctor Who writers, uh, to, and I, he was down to write a script or writing a script at a time when the next Doctor wasn't absolutely certain, you know, they weren't quite certain who was coming. 
And I said, isn't that tough, Paul, if you don't know who you're doing it for, you know? And he said, no, the doctor is always the doctor. And that's true, you see, the fundamental nature of the doctor doesn't change. You get the quirks of the actors, you see, I mean, I met, before I wrote uh, Robot, which is Tom's first show, I met Tom a couple of times and was very struck by this sort of wild, scatty quality which he had, especially when he was younger. I always used to say that Tom was the sort of chap, if you said, hello Tom, it's a nice day, you'd say, what? Is it? Yes! Yes it is, it's a wonderful day. And that's what he was like, and so I used that in the script. And I thought, well, I'll write him fairly crazy in the first one, and if they want to, they can calm him down a bit later, you know, because you've got the thing of the regeneration always shakes the up. But I don't think they ever did very much. He <laughs> continued fairly crazy. Well, and I think one thing that we sometimes take for granted, because you're so, you know, you've as a script editor and target novel writer, all of your Doctor Who scripts are terribly funny. So what's your, where's, what are you, do you, do you enjoy comedy? Do you have... Yeah, I, I started in comedy. And uh, I, I, the first things I ever sold were a couple of comedy films, radio plays for the BBC. And then I did uh, a comedy series with uh, Alfie Bass and Harry Fowler. So that was kind of my intention. And then I got sort of sidetracked in Doctor Who. But, and, uh, you know, other sort of more straight fiction, adventure fiction. But humour has always come into it. You know, that's always been a really important uh, part of it. And what's, so what's your early, earliest memory of getting involved with Doctor Who? My earliest memory is um, after I went to... Um, what happened was that I was working on a soap opera called uh, Crossroads, the original legend, you know, Acorn Antiques, but the actual <laughs> original. And I, I worked on that for a spell and met Derek Sherwin, who was also working on it. Then he left to become script editor of Doctor Who. Then he wanted to leave... He wanted to leave Who, which he never really was an enthusiast for. You know, he wanted to do something more dignified and worthwhile. So he worked on, uh, he got a job on a play series. Um, but in order to leave, he had to find a replacement. And he tried two or three people, and then more or less in desperation, I think, turned to me. You know, we'd had a drink together and travelled up and down on the train. And um, he just phoned up one day and said, how would you like to be scripted to Doctor Who? which I always feel a bit ashamed of, because fans tend to say, God, you must have fought and struggled, you know, to, uh, to achieve this. And uh, I say, no, you just sit at home and somebody rings up, you know. It's luck. I mean, I've had an enormous amount of luck in my life, and that was luck. And, you know, um, I, I took, you know, I went and uh, joined Derek, and he didn't get his new job and stayed on for And I kind of took to it, you know. And... You couldn't have known then how your um, career with Doctor Who was going to pan out. Was was Barry Letts coming in a vital? Because you two, obviously, he came after you, but you two are the, are, you know, the association yeah. between the two of you seems to be the definitive um, aspect of That's your career. That's another enormous stroke of luck. When I joined, the current producer and uh, producer and script editor which is, uh, was Peter Bryant, who I think is no longer with us, so I can safely lively. him. And um, <laughs> they spent most of their time in the BBC bar, occasionally popping back to the office. And, you know, being an innocent in these matters, I thought this is how you made television shows. But it isn't. Um, 
and the script situation was in diabolical chaos. You know, they had scripts not arriving, scripts not working, scripts being turned down. And um, in fact, the War Games, you know, which has been recently DVDs, how that came about, they had two projects, a six-parter and a four-parter. They both collapsed. One day, Derek, came, Derek Sherwin came into my office and said, Terence, we need a ten-part Doctor Who, you've got to write it, and we need it next week. <laughs> I exaggerate slightly, but not that much. It was that sort of situation. And I knew I could never do it on my own, so I turned to Mac Hulk, who was my friend and mentor, and we co-wrote it. But I only say that it gives you an example of what it was like. That should, you know, a ten-part Doctor Who is nonsense. It should never happen, you know. And thank God we got away with it. People seem to quite like it. Though. It's a damn good story, I have to say. It's fantastic. But there's not an ounce of padding it. You seem to make it work every time. All the subplots sort of gel together. And you mentioned that, that, that Malcolm Holt was a, a mentor of yours, and uh, you then obviously went on to employ him. And he's the sort of the Pertwee era writer in a way yeah, that seems yeah. to symbolise what that era was about. So what was he, what, what was he like as a man, Mac? Mac, oh, Mac, <laughs> Mac was quite extraordinary. Small, bald, uh, bespectacled, very sharp, very sharp, sort of uh, slightly aggressive manner. I mean, sort of thing, typical whack. I phoned him up, we were talking about something on the phone one day, and uh, he wanted to give me a piece of information. I said, hang on a second, uh, Mac, I'll get a pen and paper. And he said, tell us you are talking to me on the telephone. I therefore assume that you have a pen and a notebook close to hand. <laughs> and after that, I did, you know. <laughs> that, that, that was Mac for Very precise, very meticulous. I mean, another example. When he decided he wanted to become a writer, Mac went on a course and learned to touch time. I know no other writer in the world who did that. They're most of them like me, you know. I, I am a fast two-finger hunt and peck typist, you know. I mean, after 70 Doctor Who books, you get into the way of it, you know. But um, I never learned, you know. I never thought of learning, but that was me. Be a writer, learn to touch time. And he was, a, he was a very political man, wasn't he? Well, he's, uh, he didn't like it talked about, um, but he came out of the old unit, Unity Theatre, you know, uh, which was a very left-wing sort of organisation in those days. So I think that background was always with it. And do, uh, where do you stand? Because I, I know sometimes... Because when we do the DVD commentaries and things, and I'll go, oh, of course, this is the monster of Peladon and it's mirroring the minor strike, you go, oh, no, that was just a massive coincidence. So, so where do well, you stand believe, on, on yeah. politics yeah. influencing sort of subplots of scripts and things like that? Do you think there's a place for that? In no, you see, what, what a writer thinks and believes, two things, what a writer thinks and believes, will come out in his writing. And what's in the air and in the atmosphere, the zeitgeist, you know, um, will probably creep into the stories in some way. But it was never a conscious plan or ambition to do anything political. It was always to get a good, you know, to get a good story, to get a good story out. I mean, people used to ask me, what are your aims and ambitions for the show? And I always used to say, my aims and ambitions are that the BBC will not have to put on the test card at six o'clock on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and 
then after, you know, you've gone away having been, you know, the script editor of a very successful period in the show, and then you wrote Tom Baker's introduction and did the horror fan rock, which had been does, does a, and then you came back after a while to, to work under a very different regime when you did State of Decay. And was that a bit of a culture shock coming into a show that you'd been an endemic part of, and now you were sort of a writer for hire, if you like? I think you just have to be professional about it, you know. Um, I remember I didn't get on particularly well with the script editor, but, um, you know, um, when I was script editor, the show was going to be the way I wanted it. And when someone else was script editor, it was going to be the way he wanted it. You know, you just, you have to have a professional attitude to, uh, to do that. I mean, I worked a fair bit with Bob Holmes, who had worked who, as my writer, and then he became script editor and I worked for him. And we, we always got on pretty well, you know. And are you, do, you, do you like State do you think, Were you happy with how State of Decay turned out? Because it's from a very def definitive period of the show's history. There's was, was no season quite like that season. Where yeah, no, no, I think it worked pretty well at the end of the day. You know, there was a certain amount of storm and stress. As I say, the, the script editor, um, at one, one point, um, who, who was the director? Chris, uh, Peter Moffat was the director. Yeah, Peter, Peter Moffat was the director. And um, Barry told me that... Uh, the script editor had rewritten large chunks of the script and uh, given it to Peter Moffat, who looked at it and said, what's this rubbish? I want Terence's original script back. So that is immensely gratifying. But, uh, so hooray for Peter Moffat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think the final question to ask you, well, first, because for these podcasts, I ask um, the interviewees to nominate a charity. So what's your charity? I think basically anything concerned with the uh, children, I mean... Um, I contribute, you know, a sort of regular annual to save the children. I think save the children or something like that. Yeah. yeah. That's a great one. And I have, I have two very quick questions, and thanks to Fraser for being very shared. First is, it's the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. What is your message to a group of people who spent an awful lot of your time with? What's your message to the Doctor Who fans on the 50th year of Doctor Who? Keep watching it. I mean, why not? Yeah. Why not another 50th year? And. There's a lot more to you than Doctor Who, and it's, it's what most people always talk to you about, but if there was a, a, an aspect of your work that we took Doctor Who out of the equation, and you went, this is what I'm proud of, this is what I would like people to see or read or whatever, what would be the thing that wasn't Doctor Who that you'd like people to look at? It, it's hard to say. I mean, what happened, you see, when I'd done the novelisations, um, uh, some way through, they began to be bestsellers. And uh, I then... So I was a best-selling children's writer, you know, just more by accident than design. So when that happens, publishers come to you and say, will you write something for us, you see? So I wrote several sort of series of one kind or another which were not good. I mean, I did a detective series called The Baker Street Irregulars. I'm quite, I'm quite keen on that. So I'd probably say that out of, out of all the other things. So that's what you ought to do now, get the Baker Street Irregulars. Well, look, if what, we could talk for hours, and you're so generous with your time, your hours. Please, ladies and gentlemen, Terence and Mike Bell and everybody else involved with Who at Hoylake, the convention I recorded that at. Uh, there's another one this year 
not many tickets left, but uh, check it out. I'll be there, as will some Who's Round veterans and many others. Uh, Terence's charity was www.savethechildren, all one word, all small case, savethechildren.org.uk. Make sure you tune into the next Who's Round, but I will be interviewing a lady with a lot of very impressive TV credits right up to now, uh, who managed to find time in a very busy schedule to uh, talk to me about a rather special place in Doctor Who's history that she holds. That's the next Who's Round with a very special guest uh, sometime, somewhere on the internet. In the meantime, this is the voice of Toby Haydoke. It's, it's probably the best bit of him. Hollywood. Think of the, the premieres, the stars, the, the parties. That's just what I am thinking of. The monsters might all be roaming free out there. In Hollywood, on Sunset Boulevard. Shh! Listen. I thought I heard something too. You're here for the elixir, yes, of doom. All this excitement. I don't suppose I'll sleep at all tonight. <laughs> 